in 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 our faith in our tradition it's a sin to eat if you know your neighbor is hungry mm-hmm. and be- if we were to take that approach um to our society because again you know we're all neighbors uh, in the end um that's right uh if we were to take that approach and say you know what does it mean to care for my neighbor the way I care for my own kids? Um, how would we think about this world? And there is an opportunity, I think, to bring that attitude and that perspective to our politics, which is exactly what this movement has been about. Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Ryan Cooper. And I'm Alexi the Greek. Very honored and privileged to welcome Dr. Abdul El Sayed on the podcast today. Um, just so excited to talk about your memoir and uh, also political work, uh, Healing Politics. Um, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed was most famously and most recently running for office as for governor of Michigan and holds a number of degrees. This is a, a very timely work. I, I, I think it's, uh, it's something we'll dive into quite intensely because uh, almost prophetically and, and unfortunately, the, the main metaphor of the book dealing with pandemics um, metaphorically for the body politic and literally has come to be especially relevant today. So we're so excited to talk with you today and have you on for your, your, your expertise. Welcome. Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Alexi and Ryan. I really appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to, to have a chat with you guys and talk about um, the, the moment. It uh, feels like a lot is hanging in the balance, huh? Yeah, there, there's a lot to, to dive into. Um, and, and I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll get to how kind of your, your book and, and narrative and lessons in, in life and politics um, can be brought to bear on this moment. But maybe we should start with kind of what got you into becoming an epidemiologist, which even though I'm Greek, I didn't know that the root of the word is um, what is upon us, right? Or what is upon the people? Uh, what, is plaguing, right. what is plaguing the people? So um, it was so cool. To, by the way, I loved the book, really, really enjoyed um, how you, you wove in your, your experiences, your narrative uh, into the, the vision for politics that you have. Uh, but maybe you can introduce us to your journey and how and how there seems to be this relationship between epidemiology, which has nothing to do with the skin, right? That's different. <laughs> uh, but between epidemiology and, and empathy and what politics needs today. Yeah, well, no, I, I appreciate that. Um, you know, I am the child of uh, an immigrant uh, from, from Egypt, my father, and my mother's also an immigrant from Egypt, but I was raised by my father and my stepmother. Uh, my stepmom is a daughter of the American Revolution. And so... I grew up my whole life, um, you know, people talk about code switching. I, I was doing a lot of code translating. And um, so my summers would have me getting on an airplane and going to Alexandria, Egypt, where I would hang out with my grandparents, aunts and uncles, cousins. And the entire time uh, I was there, I was just in effect in a different world. Now, my grandmother, who was my main, main, main caretaker there, uh, when I would travel, never got to go to school, though she was the wisest and most intelligent person I've ever met. And um, she would take it upon herself to remind me that there was nothing special about me. There was something special about the opportunities I had. you know. And she uh, had eight kids, six of whom survived past the age of one, two of whom died. Mm-hmm. And it, it always struck me that when I would travel 15 hours to Egypt, I'd travel about 10 years difference in life expectancy. And the crazy thing, though, is that I could go 15 minutes into the city of Detroit from where I grew up, and I would be traveling the same 10-year life expectancy gap. Now, making sense of that is the reason I became an epidemiologist. And so much of it is about trying to understand um, how patterns in our, uh, our, 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 our context and our opportunities and our own behaviors shape uh, who gets to have a long, healthy life. And, and so much of what I've been focused on is understanding how um, the systems that we've come to rely on to deliver us the basic means of a dignified life, whether it's the healthcare system or the housing system or our energy system or our education system or our political system or our economy, how they have been uh, crumbling because we have sold them off to the highest bidder and um, allowed them to exclude uh, the the vast majority of people who need them most so that those who own and operate them can make a profit um, and how that affects our lives and livelihoods. Yeah, one thing you talk about quite a bit in the book is is how kind of public health, you know, in the sense of, you know, kind of public ownership, public goods 
has been really like devalued and downplayed over the years. Um, you know, the things that tend to get a lot of attention now are, you know, snazzy new medical treatments mm. and, um, you know, just like high tech things, treating uh, cancers and so on. But probably the most successful, uh, you know, broadly improving the lives of the people in the realm of medicine has been public health. It's been That's stuff right. like uh, mass vaccinations and uh, clean water, mm. something we don't have in in many countries. And, um, you know, so maybe you can go through a little bit about how, uh, you know, your experience um, as we're all learning today with the coronavirus pandemic is is like the 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 welfare of the citizenry is based on you know in a medical sense like this sort of universalism and if the mm-hmm. universalism is not there the people are sick and even including like the rich people often you That's know right. it's not all, only poor people who are dying of of covid um and so you know uh whenever when we get rid of the hookworm from everything like everyone benefits mm-hmm. um and so, yeah, can you talk a little bit about like how that, you know, was sort of like uh, built up and then lost over the last uh, mm-hmm. little bit and how we're learning about it? Yeah, that's right, Ryan. So, you know, early on, so think most of human existence, the main killers of people were infectious diseases. Um, they were things like cholera and tuberculosis, infections of, you know, the usually the, the large intestine. Uh, or the lungs, right? The two main organ systems that, you know, for lack of a better term, exist at the openings of your body. <laughs> and um, uh, if you if you look at how um, those systems um, uh, are shaped by uh, the, uh, the 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 circumstance around you, it's all about whether or not the air uh, you breathe or the water and you drink and the food you eat are clean and pure. And for most of our existence. Um, it was very, very hard to protect people from uh, from you know the 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 infectious agents that existed in uh, these places. Now, public health is born the moment that we basically figure out that the reason people are getting sick on mass is because we are failing to separate right the uh, places where um, sick people are uh, shedding these viruses or these bacteria from the places where healthy people are consuming them or, or, you know, where are consuming water or air and also inadvertently consuming, uh, these, um, these infectious agents. And the minute we figured out how to prevent those, right, (coughs) is the minute the public health was born and it required collective action for the public good, right? That, That is the public in public health. That is, it requires collective action. And so, you know, there's a famous story about Jon Snow, who was the first, you know, real or second real epidemiologist, um, and Jon Snow, uh, he petitions the, 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 the board of, 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 of overseers in the local town, actually in London, uh, during a, a major cholera epidemic to remove the pump handle from a pump that is downstream uh, from where people are, uh, are, are, are throwing um, uh, putrid water. Um, and the minute that that happens, right, he, he stops the ongoing uh, epidemic. Now we've taken that to help us to learn, you know, what infectious diseases are, the germ theory of disease, um, and how to do that in uh, in a in a, in a, a, at a mass level. But um, that is the the birth of, of of public health. It saves many many lives, right? Both of adults, but mainly of children, and that's where we get this leap in life expectancy. Now, right, because infectious diseases, albeit with the caveat of of COVID nineteen, you know, because death to infectious diseases is less common today. Um, we haven't been able to adapt that public health approach well to protecting and prolonging life um, when the main diseases that kill you tend to be diseases of overconsumption. Because, of course, collective uh, action to protect the public health would mean being willing to regulate those folks who are profiteering off of the things that make us sick. You know, we did that with big tobacco, for example, but we have yet to rethink, you know, our agricultural policies. We have yet to rethink... Um, sugar sweetened beverages or uh or uh you know some of the 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 high caloric density but low nutrition nutrient density uh uh fast foods um and you know that has left us with a society where unfortunately uh the way that we eat and the way that we 
we move um, tends to leave us dying of things like diabetes uh, and hypertension. Now, what is being sold is the latest and greatest healthcare contraption uh, that can, you know, quote unquote, cure you after you've already gotten sick. Um, and that's because that's sellable. It's really hard to sell prevention, right? It's really hard to profiteer off of a non-thing, right? You're like, listen, if we invest in public health, these bad things aren't going to happen. And folks are like, well, how do I know if they're going to happen without public health? And, um, you know, the, 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 the reality of it, right, is this pandemic is a perfect example of what happens when we start dialing back on pandemic prevention, on public health agencies, on, um, you know, collective action. Uh, and, you know, we see the consequences. Infectious diseases were never really gone. Um, it's just that we'd gotten really good at dealing with the ones we knew about. Yeah, I had this hope um, in the midst of the, the unfolding disaster and the, and the tragedy that is COVID-19 that unlike so many other public health issues or so many other issues that although this also disproportionately harms uh, marginalized people, poor people, people of color, uh, there's a sense in which you can't be safe just by being white or wealthy, as, as Ryan mentioned. And, and so it, it seemed like the most obvious we're all in this together kind of moment, right? And we all have to look out for each other kind of moment. And yet, you know, you talk about kind of the virus of the anti-vaxxers and how that actually spreads and kills people and how ideology, um, including fascist exclusionary ideology, um, is so dangerous. And we, we've just come upon the one year anniversary of the El Paso shooting, right? Mass shooting last mm -hmm. summer. Um, one of the reasons that you talk about that you went into epidemiology is to look into the complexities of the interconnect interconnectedness and the patterns to help solve um, problems that can, can help save people's lives and improve life. What, what did you see when investigating ideological uh, problems that, that kind of infect and harm lives? And, and how is that kind of coming even more unfortunately clear today in this moment? Yeah, you no, know, the, the points that you made are, are really important ones. You know, as pan this pandemic is showing, is that when we fail to invest in collective action, people without resources, not just money, but also, uh, you know, access to good schools or access to uh, healthy foods or access to clean air or, or drinkable water, um, those folks who don't have the resources to protect themselves from the consequences of disinvestment in collective action suffer the most. And that's why we have persistent... Uh, health inequalities. But you're right also that this pandemic is showing us that we are all as susceptible as the most susceptible person. We're all as vulnerable as the most vulnerable person. And when we allow uh, an infectious disease to ravage low-income communities and communities of color, all we're doing is allowing that disease to propagate amongst us. And it is showing us how connected we really are. And yet, the truth of it is that we're not all in this together in the same way because, of course, some of us bear the burden so much worse. Now, what's happening, and this is what I document in the book, is that the collective experience of the disintegration of the systems that we have relied upon for basic means of a dignified life in our, uh, in our society has left us fundamentally insecure. People are consistently worried about their future, about what will be left, and probably more importantly, about their kids and what will be left for them. And that insecurity has left us in a position to be defensive and to be vulnerable to demagoguery. People who are telling us that the reason that we don't have is because they took, right? Whether, you know, they are the immigrants who came and took your job or they are uh, the black folks in the urban community who took the handouts. Um, this demagoguery is opening the door uh, for folks who claim that they have the answer to continue to exploit. And here's the paradoxical thing. This insecurity isn't just insecurity among those who are affected most, the poor, uh, the underserved, people of color. But it's also a paradoxical insecurity among the rich who recognize that in a society as unequal as ours, that they are trying to do everything they can to put socioeconomic distance between themselves and everyone else who truly and really struggles, which actually just perpetuates the system, right? And so this epidemic of insecurity that I uh, try to diagnose and, 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 and demonstrate in this book um, really comes from our fundamental disinvestment in the well-being of one another through collective action, and you see it across the board where other societies have collective health insurance programs 
uh, we have failed to enact basic policies like Medicare for all, where other societies have basic support to uh, make sure that people are protected from homelessness. Uh, our society is one where we have massive evictions uh, and homelessness across our urban communities, where other societies have invested in upgrading their infrastructure and green tech. Uh, we are still in a position where we rely on fossil fuel corporations to burn stuff that comes out of the ground into the lungs of our babies, right? That drives climate change. Where other societies have publicly invested in elections and limited the amount of money that can be spent uh, on electioneering, we have a thriving consulting class uh, that that makes to the tune of billions of dollars uh, either helping to elect politicians on behalf of corporations or lobbying them after they get elected. All of these things are part of this epidemic of insecurity uh, that drive a system that continues to perpetuate inequality, which drives that insecurity. And it is unfortunately a vicious positive feedback loop. What you've been saying reminds me very much of Richard White's uh, book, um, The Republic for Which It Stands, hmm. which is in the Oxford History of the United States. And in there, he talks about um, the, there's some statistics that, that, that show, you know, they look at gravestones and, and, uh, you know, um, people's bodies and graveyards and so on using, I don't know, some kind of ultrasound imagery or whatever. And basically, uh, people have, have shown that, uh, the height and life expectancy of Americans declined for almost the entire 19th century. Hmm. It only bottomed out in the 1890s. As the country was becoming incredibly rich, joining, you know, England as a, you know, first rate power, one of the, you know, the strongest, most powerful countries in the world. Um, but that, you know, that advancement in economic uh, production uh, happened along exactly the lines you're talking about. It was incredibly mm. exploitative mm. and, um, you know, sort of self kind of cannibalizing at the end of the day because uh, it, it literally destroyed the, you know, the physical bodies of the, the, the working class of people who are doing the work. And it was only during the progressive era and especially during the New Deal that that production was harnessed in a way to provide for the benefit of all to start doing, you know, a lot of the reforms that, that I was mentioning earlier. And that was, you know, a big underrated part of the New Deal was public health. They really did get hookworm mm -hmm. out of the South. They got rid of malaria in, in most of the country and, uh, you know, invested a ton in, in um, you know, vaccine research and a, a number of other places. And I think that the the thing about today is that people have taken it for granted for so long. You know, we've been sort of coasting off of the fumes of that sort of collective enterprise of the New Deal for so long that people have forgotten or, you know, indoctrinated themselves uh, against the, you know, the idea that, you know, oh, we, you know, we need some something like that again medicare for all it's socialism you know you hear mm. and it was like well we you know we had something like that before and it's the only reason why the united states sort of continued to exist because mm. as we saw in the gilded age and then in the great depression and now again if you don't have that sort of basic social tissue you know like That's like right. to, to draw a kind of uh a bodily analogy these these uh, these systems that allow us as a polity to to thrive in a healthy way and reproduce ourselves from generation to generation, it just doesn't work, mm -hmm. and we're just looking at the consequence of some uh, uh, a country that has become very sick, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and, and that's 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 exactly right. I mean, we have what what people don't appreciate, right, is that it's hard to see history being made in real time, and. Um, we are watching as the excesses of this new Gilded Age are playing out in front of us. Like, I'm 35 years old. Um, Y'all don't look like you're too much older than I am, if, if not even younger than I am. Um, 34. You're, you're in between us. It's a, it's a perfect distribution here. We're good. Hey, there we go. So, <laughs> I mean, just think about us, right? We were in high school during 9-11 that kicked off wars, frankly, over oil that have perpetrated, like perpetuated um, since then. And then we graduated college, those of us who were lucky enough to go to college, into a the worst financial recession since the Great Depression. And then, right, we're like early adults trying to figure out the future. 
in the middle of a once in a century pandemic that will also <laughs> likely kick off the worst financial crisis in American history. And like part of me is like, yo, this late stage capitalism thing just is not working, right? No it's just thanks. not working at no all. No thanks. My, my bootstraps aren't strong enough for this. Yeah. And I've been trying to pull myself up by them, but I just can't figure the physics out. Turns out that's physically, <laughs> physically impossible. I don't know who came up with that idea. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's it's, it's a, a devastating time to grow up. And, and I think even the, the, those younger than us even, uh, have it even worse. Right. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. It, it's, it's not new though. I, I, I love some of the statistics and some of the, the data that you have in here is the, uh, Ryan, did you know that since 9-11, well, you do because you read the book, uh, we've spent $5.9 trillion on war since 9-11. And did you know further, and I'm going to forget the exact numbers here, what is it, 232 out of the 243 years of our existence we've been at <laughs> war? So, 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 so this is, this is um, for us, phenomenologically kind of the most salient, but this is a pattern. And, you know, you, you've seen the patterns. Uh and you you just wonder, like, so many people realize how terrible this is and they come on the streets. Uh, how do we fight against it? What vision can upend the craziness? Because, you know, speaking of the, the paradox of insecurity, I think this is so fascinating uh, because I think it's absolutely true that objectively, like your friend who is part of the 1%, objectively, a lot of well-to-do, powerful people uh, are anxious and afraid and, and, and they in mm-hmm. fact are afraid of socialism and the collective action that actually is the source of healing and the source of safety and the source of serving the common good. The very thing that can help heal us and that can help protect us and fulfill us is the thing that gets weaponized into fascism and to attacking what, what they demonize as socialism. So I, I, I just think it's so important for us to get, to get back to, to the ideological kind of brainwashing. Um, so yeah, maybe, maybe we could speak a, a bit more about what, you know, political scientist Ira Katznelson calls affluenza, which is the disease mm-hmm. of, of the wealthy, right? Yeah. And it, it is, it is a, it is a recognition that everything that they've built their mounds of wealth on is itself flimsy. And so part of me says, you know, what is, I mean, I've never been somebody who like understood the chase for money. God knows my my dad's always like, why are you, why are you not a surgeon right now? Um, (laughs) My immigrant dad just cannot understand my life choices. Um, uh, I've never understood just, you know, the the rush for money. I just, I, I don't understand it, but I think there's something about the fear of not having it. But part of me says, if all of your wealth is built on a system that itself is so flimsy, then what does it do for you anyway? And I think people implicitly understand that. And their only solution is to build more wealth. And it's funny, right? Because like the more they build, it's like that flimsy, uh, that flimsy um, platform on which it was held is not going to be able to hold that much. So it's just going to break and you're going to lose it all. And like, (laughs) this is the point. Like when I was running, um, I remember sitting down with the uh, regional chamber of commerce who of course was never going to endorse my campaign, but um, you know, (laughs) but they were like, you know, why are you going to go meet with them? Because I have a message to deliver. And I told them, I said, listen, you are going to recognize that the way that our society has run for far too long has left too many people out and we are headed into really turbulent waters. And frankly, you have a choice about what right-sizing this ship looks like, right? It's going to either look like demagoguery and complete societal like breakdown, which unfortunately like you're seeing right now in real time, or it's going to look like constructive policymaking that at least can, can, can reason with you on a frame that you, uh, you believe in. And can ask, what does it look like for us to systematically and thoughtfully deconstruct a very broken system and reconstruct it in a much more thoughtful and logical way rather than, you know, what we're seeing right now, which is, you know, Donald Trump's just sort of like pick out, pick at the search board and just pull stuff out and see what happens. Right. Um, (laughs) And um, and all of this, I'll be honest with you, right, this culture war that we're seeing right now, it has its roots in both racism and inequality. Um, and th- yes. those two things are a terrible blue- brew. And, you know, 
one of the points that I hope comes out of the book is the recognition that a lot of what we're hearing from Trump's base is, is fear, anxiety, and insecurity spoken through the lens and the voice of a demagogue who's told them to believe that the reason they don't have the things that their parents and their parents' parents took for granted is because our economic and political system has forgotten them, not because the brown people or the black people, right? And so in some respects, it's the way that these two things come together that we have to decouple. And we have to have the empathy to recognize that a lot of that base is hurting too, even if some of the things they do out of that pain is 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 terrible, it's damaging, and it's hateful. But it's still pain. And I think the point that I'm trying to make about empathy is the ability to look someone in the eye, right, and speak truth to their pain rather than, right, ignoring them or uh, or trying to excise them because of the hateful, terrible things that they say. And I, you know, use the example um, in the book of a, of a gentleman I got to help take care of when I was in medical school who had gotten shot just above the knee uh, and was in agonizing pain. And I saw this doctor just do this incredibly empathic thing. And he was trying to swat away all of the other medical personnel who were trying to care for his wound, of course, setting him up to go to surgery because, uh, it, it, you know, he was bleeding profusely and would die if, if he didn't get the care he needed. And she stopped everyone for a second and said, listen, I know that you're in a lot of pain and I'm so sorry. Um, and I wish you didn't have to be here. But if we don't tend to your wound, you could die. And that is not what any of us want. So I'm going to ask you to tell me when it hurts and I'll do my best to, to, to address that. But for right now, I'm going to actually, I'm going to pull your arms back and I'm going to immobilize them so that I can do what needs to be done to save your life. And this was the kind of reasoning that didn't say, oh, well, you're hurt. And so you get to do whatever it is that you want to do because you're in pain. But it did say, I appreciate and understand that you're hurt and I'm sorry that you're hurt. But right now we got to do what, what, what needs to be done to save your life. And in some respects, I think as a society, we have to have that conversation with each other uh, because it's not going very well right now. It's a that's a beautiful story that you that you write about and um, and you talk about three components or three types of empathy and it ends with action and and so uh, when do we get to tie down Mitch McConnell and tell him this is for your own good you need you, you need you need to pass Medicare for all and and I know you're in I don't know who hurt you or why you're like this but we need we need we need to pass this uh, and all of your, you know, all, all of your base will actually appreciate having healthcare. No, but seriously, uh, how do we translate the empathy that I but, think is very beautiful on an interpersonal level into uh, the action needed to actually give the institutional support and pass the legislation we need? Yeah, I, I actually think that it's not about Mitch McConnell. He is a symptom of a bigger problem. It's about going to Mitch McConnell's base and asking, tell me about your pain. I think there's a politics right now that tells us that the only people we need to talk to are 50 plus one, right? And that, uh, you know, if you can win 50 plus one, that's all you need to talk to. And then you just need to govern to 50 plus one to hold that, hold that, um, that, that group. But like the next president, and I do hope that it's Joe Biden. You know, I was a, uh, a Bernie surrogate. I believe deeply in Bernie Sanders and what he's done for our politics. But I also know that right now, if we fail to beat Donald Trump, then we may not have the democracy on which we need to fight for things like Medicare for all and the Green New Deal. And I think, though, that the next president and our politics in the future have to have the courage and the empathy to speak to everybody and to say, look, you may never support me, but I'm still going to lead for you and I'm still going to try and understand what's wrong. And I want you to understand that I'm doing this because I care about you. And I'm not going to dodge looking you in the eye. I'm not going to dodge going to your community. I'm not going to dodge having a conversation with you. And you may dem- you may try right? To, to bring me down and to hate me and, 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 and to decry what I'm doing. But I want you to know that I care about you deeply and that you matter to me. I may not agree with what you think is the problem and I will not do the things that you seem to want to do that seem to drive us further into a hole. But I do care about your pain and I want to do something about it, even if that's not the thing that you think needs to be done. And that kind of courage and that kind of empathy um, is so lacking in our politics right now. And I think if we were to have it, we could address and undo um, some of the terrible things that Trump and, and McConnell and some of these others have wrought into our politics. Um, because beating them is about speaking clearly, honestly, and empathically to their base. Um, once those folks realize that these people are trying to drive them down a cliff, um, I, think, I think there's an opportunity to really rectify things. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, <clears throat> that's a great and, and, you know, fair, fairly noble point you would make, you know, against, uh, you know, you talk a lot of, about in the book about, you know, facing Islamophobia. Um, and I want to come back to that. But I, I think I would make a distinction, you know, in, in terms of advancing this politics you're talking about, because, you know, you have on the one hand, the sort of downtrodden white working class, like the sort of prototypical Trump voter um, in the in the sort of media consciousness. And I think on the other hand, you have you have a number of people, particularly media magnates and wealthy businessmen who are funding operations like the Federalist, who are, I would say, deliberately stoking mm-hmm. race prejudice in a way mm-hmm. to kind of deflect from class politics and stoke fear about the left. Um, and that that is a thing that I, I, I would say is not, you know, you don't really need empathy in in that circumstance, you know, in, in terms of the Tucker Carlson's um, mm. so much as a sort of just like defeating that, uh, you know, try to split off those, those, you know, the, the people who have material concerns that are being leveraged by demagogues to try to like push an agenda of, you know, just like in, in Tucker Carlson's case, open white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And you talked previously about, you know, um, kind of ideological viruses and uh, you know the 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 virus of conspiracy theories and so forth, and so I wonder if you might talk a, a bit about. Um, I'm I I'm not sure if, if I remember reading this in your book or not. I did kind of skim a couple of chapters. I have to admit, but um, you know the back in the New Deal days, there were a lot of new uh, uh, regulations on media ownership. And what people are allowed to broadcast. Um, mm-hmm. I think most importantly, like you are not allowed to own four thousand different radio stations. Mm-hmm. You know, or you couldn't own different TV broadcasting stations in in different cities, and so people could not roll up these huge empires like Clear Channel or Sinclair Broadcasting. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, there are also certain standards like the Fairness Doctrine, which probably you know has its own problems. But you couldn't have Rush Limbaugh. Of just mm-hmm. like broadcasting on AM, you know, just like conservative propaganda hour after hour, um, and so in in terms of like confronting the the worst and and most cynical t- uh, type of oligarch class trying to sort of stir up race hatred and mm-hmm. uh, you know prejudice in general, and trying to trying to break up you know deconcentrate that uh, type of um, you know, media oligopoly, for lack of a better word, in a way that isn't just like dictatorial. Um, do you think that's something you know we sh- we should be pursuing? Look, I um, I think you're absolutely right. You know, some of these um, demagogues, right? People like Tucker Carlson, like Rush Limbaugh. Um, you know, while I do think one has to have empathy for for them, I think one has to be, have empathy for everyone. I think for a lot of these people, Fair. they are a source of the problem. And I think for them, you know, their their brand um, and the way that they stoke fear and they stoke hatred simply has to be defeated. But I do think that the way to doing it is is to inure people to that kind of message, right? Is that they only have power because people listen to them, because people are in pain, because they have so many uh, insecurities about the way that our systems have failed them. You know, meanwhile, people like Tucker Carlson are, are on the other side telling them that, uh, that you know, the, the reason why is because of brown and black people while, you know, robbing them clean by perpetuating the system that is uh, creating the insecurity in the first place. And so, you know, we got to call that out for what it is and um, we've got to oppose them directly. But I also think that they only operate you know, because they have, they only have power because they have an audience. And so being able to speak directly to their audience is important to the note though, right? You're right. Like our telecommunications circumstances, it's ironic, despite the fact that everybody has access to information and, uh, to be able to create platforms, um, in ways that were unprecedented in the past, what people don't appreciate is that most people simply have an entry level platform, right? 
to be able to play in the big leagues, right? You got to have money and powerful interest behind you. And that's because we've allowed the system of telecommunication to be consolidated by a very small number of very large corporations, right? Whether it is, you know, the Sinclairs of the world uh, or it's the, you know, sort of AM radio syndicates um, or it's social media, which is probably the bigger problem right now. Um, You know, I do talk about 13 ideas uh, to heal our insecurity in the back of the book. And um, uh, social media reform is a big part of that. And um, toward that end, I think there are a couple of ways uh, to reform social media without violating the First Amendment uh, in, in, in form or function. The first is um, you got to break up these huge corporations that you know, are able to copy uh, or kill um, uh, or buy uh, any of their competitors, right? Facebook, we have to agree, is now you know, a conglomerate. Amazon um, is a conglomerate. Apple and, uh, and, and, and Microsoft in lesser form, Google. Uh, these are um, uh, the, the kinds of trusts in the form of a standard oil uh, in the first Gilded Age um, that need to be broken up. And the second is around um, actively uh, enforcing, so setting policy and then enforcing that policy around um, uh, not what gets to go on the platform, but around the means of amplifying a message on a platform, right? Bots shouldn't be a thing, right? Taking down bots isn't violating anybody's First Amendment rights because bots don't have First Amendment rights. They're not real people, right? And so, you know, <laughs> all being bots able- matter. <laughs> it's right. Like being able to just say, look, you as a platform are going to have to police um, the bots on your uh, platform and uh, you are going to have to uh, limit the extent of reach that money can allow, right, on your platform. Um, that goes a long way toward reducing the amplification of some of these uh, very hateful messages without violating any First Amendment rights. Nobody's saying you can't put your crazy ideas on Facebook. Go ahead. But what we are saying is that you can't buy a bunch of fake accounts, right, to amplify your crazy message on Facebook. And, right, you shouldn't be able to uh, to game the system by buying rights to other people's eyes because that just shouldn't be allowed. And and I think those reforms would go a long way uh, toward limiting the propagation. And then the last piece is um, rethinking the kind of algorithmic sorting that exists, right? Like we don't appreciate that there's physical segregation all over us, all over all over society because of redlining, but there's also intellectual segregation on uh, social media. And that kind of segregation is propagated by algorithms that mix us or sort us into seeing only what it is uh, that seems to reify a message uh, that we've already heard. And I think uh, going doing something about those algorithms would go a long way to making sure that people saw a, uh, a set of competing ideas, right, to really allow for a free market of ideas. Um, none of those things violate the First Amendment, but all of those things I think would go a long way uh, toward reducing the power that a lot of these uh, demagogues have. You know, I, I, first of all, I wish you were the current governor of Michigan, but, um, just reminded me, it reminded me that, uh, that we deserve to have you in office. Um, just like you were, you were serving the public in Michigan as, as, uh, you know, the commissioner of, of health, but, uh, in thinking about how politically to actually get these policies and we can dive into more of them because I think they're very, very interesting and, and a great part of your, your vision. Uh, we've talked about the, the Mitch McConnell's and, and their base, and we've talked about, uh, the kind of obstacles ideologically there, but it occurs to me that, you know, when it comes to another important part of your, your story and your vision, uh, various types of good and bad identity politics that, um, you know, the Democrats can appropriate identity politics in a way that elides some of the connections between wealth and power that you were talking about. Um, because I, I can see that Medicare for all is something that helps everyone, but also because of the disproportionate harm done to marginalized communities and communities of color, it's especially good for those communities. And, and yet the Democrats, other than Bernie and, and right, you know, other than the, the left wing of the party, they don't get behind things like Medicare for all or the Green New Deal. And, um, Joe Biden maybe is somebody that we need to really push and pressure if, uh, God willing, he, he wins elections. So how do you think about your vision in terms of, 
um, the politics involved in challenging capitalism and how that actually implicates both parties. Because it's great to have the Never Trumpers and the Lincoln Project um, mm-hmm. being against <clears throat> fascism, right? And that kind of uh, abrogation of democratic norms. But they're not going to be for Medicare for all either, right? And they might have more mm-hmm. alliances with Nancy Pelosi than Bernie does. So well, how do you address yeah. that concern? Yeah, look, I um, I am a, a deep skeptic when it comes to electoral politics. Um because I think it's too easily gamed. And I say this as someone who's run for office um, and sort of seen how the, the system gets worked. Um, unfortunately, it benefits money and power. And if we want to heal this epidemic of insecurity, we're going to actively have to go on and take on money and power. And so I do believe that part of that is electoral politics. I mean, we've got to beat Donald Trump. He is an existent, existential threat. And I believe deeply in government. And I think, you know, democracy uh, is, um, uh, you know, it's the worst. And for <laughs> this is a quote, I believe it's Churchill. Um, not yeah. that uh, there's a lot of things that one wants to quote from Churchill, but um, but uh, he said, you know, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the other kinds. And, um, you know, protecting our democracy has to be first and foremost. And I believe that so many of the things that we need to do have to operate through a robust government. And I think sometimes on the left, we mistake our disagreement with the things that the government does for a disagreement with government in general, right? And um, I am I am no anarchist. I have spent too much time in societies without functioning governments uh, to believe that somehow if we just did away with the government, we'd be better off. I, I, I think there's a you know extreme amount of privilege in that kind of belief set because it just says that you've never been to a place where there's not working government because um, that shit sucks. Um, uh, but that does mean that we have to take the power of um, unfettered money and, uh, and, and, and take it out of our governing system. And the fact is, is that beating Donald Trump does not do that. It's not enough. And so, yes, we have to beat him, but that's the floor. That's not the ceiling. Um, and moving forward, there has to be a concerted effort to do a couple of things. Number one, I think it's to change culture. Like I, I I ran for office because I actually believed that, you know, if, if you, if you were able to present policies that solved problems to people that that you could get elected. And I have since changed my beliefs on that. I do believe that presenting policies to people is important, but I also believe that doing the cultural work to value the things that need to be changed is important. And I just think politics is a it, in its, at its best form, it translates our culture into policy. Um, and that means that we got to get our culture right, which means that we've got to do the work of influencing how people think and getting folks in touch with both the system and showing them how it's all connected. Um, and then also making sure that our values that we say we believe in are truly believed in. Um, and then the second part is uh, making sure to mobilize uh, that into political change, um, which means that we work both in the halls of power and outside the halls of power to create a resonant system that rejects the power of corporations and money um, in shaping policy outcomes for those powerful people and rather toward and for the people uh, writ large. And um, and so it takes a lot of work that we need to do together. And one thing that I'm really frustrated with, I'll be honest with you guys, is that you know in this moment where we worked so hard to uh, elect Bernie and he didn't win, that our movement hasn't necessarily had the ability to reframe around the long term and recognize that this is part of a far bigger fight. And unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of cannibalizing and a lot of purity politics and a lot of sanctimony. And I just don't think sanctimony saves lives. I mean, the number of times I've been lectured uh, by folks about Medicare for all, um, you know, for being a part of the Bernie uh, and Biden task force to try and pull Biden to the left. Um, you know, I, honestly, to me, is a bit distressing. I literally am writing wow. a book about Medicare you, for you, All comes out in February. You were lectured about participating in that from the left. You were you were you were chided for it. Yeah, and and look, I, you know, part of it is to say, look, I believe deeply in Medicare for All, which is exactly the reason why I took partook. Because if I didn't, right, I could sit and be quiet with my beliefs and hold my purity and know that the people that I served when I was health director for the city of Detroit would be worse off because of it. And I, you know, it, at some point, right, ideology is only as useful as it creates outcomes on the ground. And so to me, right, the questions that I ask myself are, if I think about the median person that I had to take care of in Detroit, how is this going to change their lives? Because in the end, it's not about me. It's not about my ideology. It's not about 
any of us. It is about those people and whether or not they have a little bit more uh, access to the dignity that all of us deserve. And so, you know, I think we have an opportunity to recognize that we have actually won in this moment. I know it doesn't look like it, but we have been able, right, to earn seats at the governing table and that will only grow. And that is because our movement coalesced and was able to get some amazing things done. And I really hope that the kind of unity that we were able to come to, the kind of pressure we were able to show, the kind of honesty that we were able to bring to our conversations about what should happen in the future, that we recognize that those are ascendant. And even if they don't create the kind of changes that we wanted to see in 2020 directly, that the trajectory of this movement is strong if we do not cannibalize ourselves and right. if we learn how to work with folks to achieve the outcomes that we want. And my, my stress to folks is like, you know, listen, when, when this movement becomes the mainstream, right, will you be on board to turn it into action on the ground, right? And, you know, that is the thing is we say we want to win, but then as we win, people are like, well, you know, I, I'd rather have uh, the purity of my politics and, and rather than the ability to actually change facts on the ground. And that's, you know, to me, never what it should have been about. It's, it's, um, that's disheartening. Although, although like, I, I can't wait to hear from you about your experience uh, on the joint committee and, and how you felt about that. But if that didn't actually work to push or pull Biden to the left, that wouldn't be the fault of the leftists, right? At least you tried. And, and yeah, that's the very least that we can hope for of the people that have access to power. I mean, ultimately, I think somebody needs to sit down with Biden and slip him a little MDMA and get some empathy. But, <laughs> failing, failing that, I think, I think that the best thing is to try to do what you did. So maybe you can tell us what, what was your experience, um, trying to fight for and talk to, um, you know, those centrists in the party that, uh, that unfortunately won the, the primary, but that were willing to, to listen to, to, uh, those of us who were trying to push for a more radical vision. How did that go for you? Yeah. I mean, look, I'm not gonna lie to you. It was, it was a, it was, it was very, very frustrating. Sure. Um, because, the reality is, is that we come to our politics from a different belief about how the world works often. I mean, and that's something that, that is, is, is important to acknowledge, um, that, you know, it, it's not even just a difference in philosophy about, about, um, about how to win elections. It's even bigger. It's a difference in philosophy about, um, about who matters and about why they matter. And at the same time, that takes nothing away from the earnestness with which other people believe their perspectives. And, and so it's, you know, for, for me, I found, you know, several people with whom I had um, a number of disagreements about how best to solve the challenge of American healthcare, but who were earnest in their beliefs and, um, you know, felt like they were doing their best within the circumstance in which they sit. And the question for us is, how do we engage people um, with whom we may disagree about tactic and strategy and even sometimes end outcome, but do so in a way that still respects them and allows us to advance the goals that we have. And I think that that is, you know, we're really good at our outside game. We're not as good at the inside game. And for me, it was a big learning experience. You know, um, how do you sit with folks with whom you disagree and say, I respect you and I disagree with you and I'm going to push you and you're going to push me. And in the end, right, Neither of us are going to be all that happy with where we got because all of us disagree, right? But it will have been a compromise that allows us to move forward to take on the bigger existential threat. And, you know, as we move forward, I know that that spirit of um, of constructive disagreement is hard because all of us recognize the deep weight of the fact that we are sitting in the middle of a pandemic where 27 million people don't have health care. Because we have bent over backwards to accommodate an industry that is itself unnecessary, allow another industry, the pharmaceutical industry, to run roughshod over us to sell us shit that we invested in researching and developing for far too expensive, right? Where, you know, and which is leaving seniors going bankrupt just to pay their, 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 for the bills for their pills. And, um, that is deeply frustrating, but it also takes the patience to say our ideas are ascendant, right? And we're winning. And, um, and I know we're not winning fast enough. I, I, you know, every night before I fall asleep, I think about how many people are suffering because of the circumstance that we live in and it's not fast enough. It'll never be fast enough. If we pass Medicare for tomorrow, for tomorrow, Medicare for all tomorrow, 
right? Yeah. I would still be weeping over all the people who are sick and dying today and all the people who are sick and dying before then. Um, but it takes the willingness to continue to push and recognize that we will win in a tomorrow that is coming. Um, and it is our effort and our focus and our willingness to uh, continue to push uh, and to drive um, that is going to create that future. Uh, so it's hard, right? Losing elections is hard. Like I, um, the, the analogy I always use and, you know, pardon my, my crude football analogy here. It's like, look, we've been on defense for so long, right? That uh, sometimes we forgot how to play offense and we think that, you know, when we get on offense, we're just going to throw Hail Marys until we score a touchdown. Um, and so, you know, it's frustrating because you're like, yo, I know we can, we can tag and we can hit the end zone, but we're not. And so we're settling for a field goal when we know that we could be winning a touchdown. But part of me also says that I'll take a field goal over going back on defense any day. And um, however frustrating it is uh, to know that we could be scoring touchdowns and we're not. Very well said. Um, <clears throat> I'd just like to note that uh, Bob Avakian, the um, famous or infamous revolutionary uh, Maoist uh, who has been, you know, sort of on in left circles for many years, uh, recently uh, endorsed voting for Biden um, hmm. and sort of a harm reduction <laughs> uh, framework. But I, I want to ch uh, change gears just slightly um, and and talk about you know in in the parts of your book you talk uh you talk about um your growing up as a as a you know egyptian american immigrant and uh you know your faith um both sort of experiencing prior to 9-11 especially like the kind of at least somewhat welcoming home for Muslim Americans uh, mm. that that does that does exist, especially in in places like Michigan, where there is a fairly significant uh, population of uh, those folks. And then you know afterwards, um, you know, experiencing a lot of prejudice uh, after nine eleven. And so, I wonder if you you know if you could just tell us a little bit about how you know you you talk about. Uh, sort of rediscovering your faith a little bit after 9-11 and how, you know, from being a kind of secular Muslim, for for lack of a better word, you know, not being terribly observant to sort of rediscovering, you know, what it's all about and how in some ways it's been, uh, the, the faith has been terribly perverted by by some, mm -hmm. you know, some extremists coming from Saudi Arabia for the most part. And, and mm -hmm. what, what was that like? Yeah. You know, it's funny. Um, Having spoken to extremists of many stripes, they all use the same <laughs> arguments, right? They're all like, it's us versus them. And you're like, well, it's funny. I just wish all of you all could just get in a room together and realize like, well, damn, like this is all the same ideology, whether it comes dressed up in like, you know, a white, a white, uh, a white thelb and a, and a beard or, you know, fatigues um, on the Capitol steps <laughs> of, of the state of Michigan, right? Like it's the same ideology and it's never true, right? Um, and for me, it was recognizing that, you know, once I came to, I was almost forced back to my faith, this reason why I was being discriminated against all the time to actually look into it and be like, well, you know, like this is about the radical truth of good character <laughs> and that if you're willing to, to always fight for justice, but do so with empathy and with respect and with kindness, um, being the change, you know, for lack of a better term that you want to see in the world and embodying that in the way that you interact with others and the things that you stand up for, then, you know, the world can be better. And, you know, it is that, 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 that simple message, um, that in the long term for me has been the anchor, um, of faith. And, uh, I constantly ask myself, you know, are you bringing the best of yourself and, the most of the ideals that you hold to every discussion and every conversation and every engagement and every smile, um, that you give to somebody. And, um, are you, uh, able to recognize that it is, you know, the injustice that you fight against is just the grandest and most systematic form of the unkindliness that some people treat other people with. Right. And, um, and so it's like this scale free, uh, approach to to 
goodness, right? That you're good to individuals that you see, you're good to groups of people that you're with, and you're good to society by fighting an unjust system, um, but doing so by being uh, somebody who always holds one's, oneself and, and one's um, people to the highest ideals of justice and kindness. And, um, you know, and, and, and that's a simple thing, right? And it comes from this idea like that if you believe in, 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 in one God, then God is, I mean, we always say this, Allahu Akbar means God is greater, right? And if God is greater and God is infinite, then everything else is finite. And in the face of infinite, everything finite is equal, right? And that is that recognition that actually there is nothing different between me and you and anyone else. And what we're fighting for, right, is a recognition that some people shouldn't arrogate themselves of other people simply because of the things that they have in the world. Um, and so it leads us to this sort of very progressive view on the way the world ought to be um, and the recognition that uh, that in the end, right, like all of us are just equal in the sight of something far bigger than we are. And, you know, I know a lot of folks, faith is a hard conversation uh, on the left because a lot of people have such a bad experience with the worst things that are done in the name of faith. Um, but um, but I, I would ask folks to hold people of faith accountable rather than throw the entire thing uh, uh, away and just say, are you really um, fighting for the thing that you say you believe in, right? If you're a Muslim, are you really fighting for justice or are you trying uh, to arrogate yourself over other people because of what you think you are uh, in the ways that you think you're better than them? If you're a Christian, are you really walking in the path of, of Christ? Um, if you're Jewish, are you really walking toward the highest ideals um, uh, of uh, of your faith? And if you are atheist, right, are you really living out uh, the set of values that says that you know, all of us are, are you know, in, in the face of science um, or the cosmos, uh, that all of us really in the end are just some small speck and um, and that we should have the dignity uh, to treat all of us um, with that recognition. Uh, and so, you know, in the end, you know, whether it's God or it's uh, the belief in, in a higher power or it's a belief in, you know, the elegant construction of science, um, I think that belief in something bigger, uh, I just think is really important to reminding us what we really are um, and that reminder of what we really are is important uh, into into bringing out the the justice and the equality uh, that so we we seek to create in the world. Yeah, it was um, really one sort of under remarked aspect of this recent primary was how uh, Bernie Sanders made a lot of um, you know explicit outreach to the Muslim American community, mm. um, and you know. <clears throat> It, it it seemed to me like that was a sort of encapsulation of his his kind of politics because you know you think about um just in pure electoral terms there there just aren't that many muslim americans it's like mm-hmm. 1% of the population or something like that you know um maybe maybe a little bit more than that but it's it's not any sort of huge demographic that you can can uh, switch but it seemed like he thought it was important and um and that it was, you know, particularly in a time when the the the, the president, President Trump, was being just incredibly prejudiced towards mm-hmm. towards Muslims, to uh, emphasize the fact that uh, America could be a perfectly, you know, welcoming home to uh, people of any faith, Muslims, Jewish, otherwise, mm-hmm. um, and and so it seemed like that, you know, uh, uh, was a sort of necessary. A component of any kind of, you know, lefty politics that you you gotta out you you have to make allowances for even if people are sort of uh, small in demographic terms, um, everybody has to have a place. And if you leave anybody out, then uh, just for reasons of convenience, then it's it's never gonna last because somebody will come in and and split the split the group up based on you know some sort of prejudice or another. And That's right. so on the ground in Michigan, was that, you know, did, did you see that, like, were people appreciative of that kind of outreach from, you know, who oh. would, a, a man who would have been the first uh, Jewish um, uh, presidential nominee? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, Muslims in America love Bernie Sanders. And, um, and, and, and that's also because Bernie Sanders really cares about Muslims. And, um, and he made it clear, right? Like, Bernie um, explicitly took the time to reach out to, as you said, a very small community, uh, which I will say is also very electorally potent because Muslims haven't often voted and Muslims tend to live in swing states. Um, uh, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, but 
to, to reach out and to listen and to learn um, and to speak for uh, our community. And I, I also just think that like, you know, it's funny, right? Because the stereotype is that how could these Muslims support uh, this old Jewish man from Brooklyn, right? Um, <laughs> but it just shows you that stereotypes are just that. And, um, you know, it, it is really truly a testament to our country and the best of, uh, of what's possible here when you have, you know, Yemeni, um, you know, first Yemeni, Yemeni immigrant folks showing up at a Bernie rally, uh, with Bernie shirts on, uh, and you ask them, you know, like, why are you here? And they'll just say, you know, we love Amu Bernie. And, um, uh, and that, that, that really is a beautiful thing. And it's a testament also, um, to a politics of true and deep and profound inclusion, right? Um, where you say, you know, whether you're Muslim or you're Jewish, you still got a body and you care about whether or not that body is going to get care if it gets sick. And you still need a job to feed your family because your kids have bodies that need to be fed. And, you know, you, you want a roof over your head and, uh, you want to know that you're going to be able to afford to, to make sure that your kids go to college, um, and that they're going to get a great, uh, a great education. So, um, you know, it really is just a beautiful thing and, and a beautiful sight and a beautiful movement. And I think if we can connect to the humanism of our movement and the humanity that underlies it and ask, how do we, we win the, the greatest dignity for the greatest number? Um, and how do we always keep our eyes on the real people um, who can benefit or be harmed by the decisions that we make? It makes our decisions here so much easier, um, both in the short term and uh, big picture politics. Um, and so, you know, that's the work. Um, it's both extremely simple and, and very, very hard to do. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful vision. And, and I think it goes to a lot of what you were talking about in the book about identity politics, good and bad. Um, because really, the, the vision that underlies the diagnosis, and I think the, um, the prescription here, is that celebrating difference is important because we're all equal. Right. And, and like to get past, look, it's important that those that don't have the basic needs and the education and healthcare that they get it. But, but even if they get it, they should want everyone to get it because what unites mm -hmm. us, right, is our equal humanity and then celebrating our differences of faith, of background, of experience. That is part of that shared equality, which is a very different kind of thing that the kind of identity politics that is, is like white white nationalism, white supremacy, or even the tokenism of like the neoliberal kind of uh, identity politics, which wants to kind of appropriate difference in order to, to kind of reinforce and, and um, just strengthen the, the status quo and the inequality. So, um, you know, if you, you know, I don't know how much more time you have, because we're, we're about uh, an hour in. But if you want to speak to any of these other 13 wonderful policies, um, and tie it to kind of that that vision, that I think you're right that the youth, no matter if they voted for, for Biden or whomever, uh, are really supporting that this more progressive egalitarian vision uh, that looks out for everyone, not not me, us, right? That's right. Um, you know, I'll tell you, you know, just to, to put a cap on the conversation about faith and collectivism, um, in, in, in our faith, in our tradition, it's a sin to eat if you know your neighbor is hungry. Mm, mm. And if we were to take that approach um, to our society, because again, you know, we're all neighbors uh, in the end. Um, That's right. Uh, if we were to take that approach and say, you know, what does it mean to care for my neighbor the way I care for my own kids? Um, how would we think about this world? And there is an opportunity, I think, to bring that attitude and that perspective to our politics, which is exactly what this movement has been about. And um, a couple of the ideas I just want to highlight, um, just because they don't get much much discussion, um, is that you know we fund education locally. And locally funded education means that we are literally porting the consequences of redlining into our educational funding decisions. Why isn't it that every kid should just get a pot of money that follows them no matter where they go, or who they are, or where they grow up that's invested in their education. Why also don't we peg our military budget to our education budget? So if we're going to invest in buying tanks, I also want to invest in making sure schools can teach kids, uh, nice. you know, engineering, right? Um, uh, and, um, and then one last one that we don't talk much about, but is uh, an issue, you know, to me um, uh, profoundly is... Uh, our um, investment in water. Um, you know, I'm from a state that's got more fresh water than any other 
uh, state in the country, 21% of the world's fresh groundwater. And um, we can't figure out how to get basic clean water to people, whether it's water shutoffs in Detroit or clean water in Flint. And what if we were to really take on water as a collective resource uh, and make sure that we were investing in it and made sure that it was a human right? And then, of course, um, the last one I can't you know leave without talking about is Medicare for All. Uh, but I'll leave that for the next conversation. We've got a, a book called um, Medicare for All, A Citizen's Guide coming out in February with uh, Dr. Micah Johnson, who uh, was uh, one of the architects of, of my um, state-level single-payer plan. But it's a, you know, it's a quick primer, goes deep into the policy and the politics to just lay it out there. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the very fact that we are facing a pandemic while uh, nearly 15 to 20% of our people don't have ready access to health care, and while our hospitals were too busy fighting bankruptcy to really fight uh, COVID-19 properly, that is an indictment on our healthcare system. We could do it better if we took the profit motive out, which is why I so deeply support Medicare for All and why I know that if, we, if, if and when we get this done, it'll be to the best benefit of all of us and particularly those of us uh, who are underserved. So, um, you know, these are opportunities for us to really lean into uh, that collective ideal of, of not me, us, and... Um, and, you know, I, I believe that our future will be there. Um, it's just a matter of, you know, believing in it and every day um, spending as much time as we can making it a reality. Absolutely. Abdul Al-Sayed, the book is called Healing Politics. Yes. And um, we'll throw a link to it in the description. Um, I know you got to run. So uh, thanks for coming on the show. It was my privilege. And, and I appreciate you all having me. Yeah. And thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks so much. We'll see you next time. Hello everyone, Alexi the Greek here. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Just a friendly reminder that uh, to support the show and also to get access to a number of bonus episodes, you could join us on Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash left anchor. $5 a month gets you a lot of episodes and really, really helps us out. So um, if that's something you're interested in and, and you want to show your support, we'd greatly appreciate it. Thanks so much.